Hello, and welcome to the City Grace Podcast. We're so happy you've decided to join us today as we learn how amazing it is to follow Jesus. Enjoy the message. And there, there's even a story, a couple of stories, <clears throat> excuse me, when he was a shepherd boy, um, two different times at least, one time with a lion, one time with a bear, where he's protecting the flock. It's his job. He's you know, younger than 15 when this happened. We don't know exactly how old he was when this happened, but he's out there guarding his father's sheep, and, and suddenly a lion shows up and is stalking the herd, and he kind of gets everybody off to the side. And, and, and it turns out that this lion you know, grabbed one of the sheep, and, and David was smart. I, I like this about David. He was kind of wily. He had strategy to him because going face-to-face with a lion just is not smart. That's not good strategy. And, and, and so David, he, he seems to have a strategy as you read the story, and, and it seems like he waits until the lion kind of gets the sheep and is maybe dragging the sheep off, and then David pounces on the lion. Like, that's crazy, y'all. Like, just let one go. Like, you know, it's just, you know, go back and tell dad, hey, we lost one today, but good news, everything else is good. No, David pounces on the lion, kills the lion right there, rescues the sheep from the lion's mouth at a young boy, younger than 15 years old when that happened. That's crazy. And then the same thing happened with a bear. And maybe David used the same strategy. Maybe it worked so good with the lion, he used it on the bear as well. We don't know exactly how he did it, why, or we kind of know why he did it. We don't know, you know what the strategy was and what the tactics were, but David waited until this, this bear had gotten a sheep and jumped on the bear, killed the bear, and, and saved the sheep, and, and all younger than 15 years old. David was fearless, but David was a little crazy. Like, I'm sorry, but that's just a little bit crazy, although he was very warm after that, wearing that bear skin, I'm sure. But he was smart, obviously. He was calculating. It was, he was strong. And, and it turns out, as we look at the story of David, and this is what's so beautiful about David, this is why he stands out in the Bible narrative, because we find out that David was always depending on someone beside himself to make things go his way. David was never solely depending upon himself, but David was always looking to someone else for something else that he did not have on his own. And in fact, today we're going to look at one of the first speeches that David ever made, one of the first things he ever said that made him famous. And, and if I can paraphrase it down, David basically said this, the Lord who rescued me from the lion and the bear, he will rescue me again. The Lord who rescued me from the lion and the bear. It wasn't me on my own. It was the Lord that was with me. But fighting a lion and a bear, whether you know the Lord or not, that's just crazy. That's just a little bit crazy. And, and so many of the horrible realities of that time period, really, they're so foreign to us. And as we kind of dive in and get to talk about them, really, they're, they're so grisly and gruesome to us, right? Just we're, we're so far removed from that, right? I mean, come on, our chicken comes in a package, Right? Your beef is not on the hoof when you get, unless you're Robert and his hunting buddy back there, the deer and venison, all that kind of stuff. Who knows what else Robert's out there shooting illegally? I don't know, but I won't tell on you, Robert. Don't worry. But, you know, the the meat that we eat comes wrapped in plastic and cellophane. And, and, you know, it's gross to us if the eyeballs and the head's still on the fish when we buy the package. Can I hear an amen from somebody? I don't want to look at my food looking back at me while I'm looking at my food looking back at me. I just want to sit down and eat. And, and it's just life back then was so terribly 
brutal and, and war and fighting and, and combat really was at another level still. And it's really kind of impossible for us to wrap our brains just around, around just how violent and, and horribly brutal it was. I mean, for us, as we see violence from that time, it gets romanticized. It gets glamorized, it gets sanitized, it gets fictionalized, and, and, and Hollywood has helped us out with that a lot, right? Braveheart, right? There's all these battle scenes, but it, it's stylized and it's glamorized. I mean, dudes out there hacking each other's arms off, and it's, you know, cinema. some guy won an award for taking that picture. I mean, you know, it's different for us. I mean, Gladiator. Brutal, brutal battles were romanticized, and we all want to be the gladiator, right? And, and go out and swing the sword and die in the arena to profess our love, you know, and all of these kinds of things. But Hollywood really can't, t- it cannot, it cannot take us to the horrible, horrible chaos and realities of 11th century BC warfare, where you smell the fear, where you smell the blood, and you get that iron nickel taste in your mouth. You guys know what I'm talking about, right? I don't know that because I've been in a lot of fights. I know that because I've bit my tongue before while I was eating. But you get that iron nickel taste in your mouth, the smell, the blood, and the death. And we see it from a helicopter or a drone or through the lens of a camera, but they saw it over the edge of their own shield, attached to their own arm for the moment. But they're in battle, and it's bloody, and it's brutal, and we see it with popcorn in our hands, but they saw it with their stomach in their throats, and it was hard to breathe, and, and they were hyperventilating, and, and, and you know, the air show's just going on yesterday and today, and in modern war- warfare, we kill from 20, 30 plus miles, more than that, miles away, right? With drone technology, there are literally people in America killing people around the globe, with drones, but in those times, you killed somebody. When you killed a man, it was at arm's length. You were up close and personal, and there was the, the swing of the sword, the clash of the metal, and then the sword sliding past, and you could feel the sword digging into someone's body and the eyes coming close, and your opponent, your enemy going wide-eyed, and you can smell their breath, and you knew if they had alcohol to numb their fear. You could see in their eyes that they had been drugged so that their fear would not hinder them from being violent and, and courageous in that battle and coming against you. And in ancient battles, you saw savagery. You saw terror. There was gore and blood and there were screams and, and roars. And the worst thing that you could see on an enemy's face during that time was a calm and a stillness Because if you face somebody with a calm and still face, it means that they were a trained assassin, a trained killer. And if they were a trained killer and you were going up against them, you had very little chance of living to see another sunrise. And it would only be after the battle that you would even know if you were wounded or not. The adrenaline would just be pumping through your body. And and only as that adrenaline slowly ebbs away would, would the pain demand attention. And as you looked at yourself and looked at your clothes, you'd have to start wiping everything off to figure out if, if it was your blood or your enemy's blood, but you would be covered in the blood of battle. And, and during that time, you know, even if you or if you were wounded, wounded but didn't die, there was a good chance that you would end up dying. From an infection. In fact, most of the men in, in older times, historians and archaeology, they, they tell us this that a lot of them fought naked because they didn't understand germs. But what they had figured out was that if you got wounded and your, your garment or some corner of your garment got into your wound, that infection would follow that and, and it would spread and you could lose an arm or a leg or maybe even lose your life. 
And if you were part of a weaker force, if you were part of the the army that got defeated and you were in battle along the battle line, and during that battle, if your brother to the right or your brother to the left broke ranks and, and got too afraid and turned and ran and you did not turn and run to keep up with him, then you would be swarmed and you would be surrounded and you most certainly would be killed and slashed to death by the enemy as they came around you that day. And before anybody could possibly, anybody from your side, from your country, from your family, before anybody could possibly regroup and go to the battlefield to find your body, before anybody could ever possibly gather you to be buried, you would simply cease to be present on the planet because birds would follow the warfare and beasts would haunt the battlefield and and rip the meat from the bones and bugs would infest the dead bodies and, and would eat and feast on your flesh as you lay dead on that battlefield. Who's having spaghetti and meatballs for lunch? Anybody? Nobody. Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Soko in Judah. And Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with a valley between them. And a champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits in a span. He was about nine and a half feet tall, a huge mountain of a man. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod. This is something that they would use on a loom that would hold all of the thread and spin it. They guesstimated it was somewhere around two and a half inches thick, maybe 12 to 15 uh, feet long. And, and And its iron point weighed 600 shekels, roughly about 15 pounds or more. And no doubt with Goliath being nine and a half feet tall and holding a a spear shaft that was 12 to 15 feet long, Goliath would probably stand in the second ranks on the battle lines with soldiers all in front of him. And because of his height and the reach of his spear, Goliath would not throw his spear, but Goliath would just merely reach over and stab and wound and puncture and kill enemy after enemy after enemy. Goliath was a champion of war. Goliath was the calm killer that nobody wanted to face. And Goliath stood and he shouted to the ranks of Israel, why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and you are not, and are you not the servants of Saul? Hey, let's dispense with all of the needless slaughter today. There's no sense in thousands of us dying. We know what you think of us Philistines, that you don't think that we're worth very much or very good people, that you think you're better than us. Well, it should be an easy fight for somebody. And we know, Israel, that you're so proud of your first ever king. See, King Saul was Israel's first ever king. This was uncharted territory. They had never had a king before, and a king was a protector. And a king was supposed to be responsible for making them safe and and, and making sure that they were prospering. And wouldn't it be great if our first ever king could take care of this first ever battle challenge from this nine and a half foot giant that is standing there calling somebody out to their most certain death. And Goliath goes on using his giant sized vocal cords to play up to their fear. And he says, choose a man, have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, then we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him, and if I kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. And then the Philistines said, this day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. And on hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed 
and terrified. Of course they were. Because nobody wanted to go out and fight that man. Nobody thought they had a chance in a one-on-one fight versus that killing machine. And Goliath did this and continued this terror and this mocking and this, this taunt at Israel week after week for 40 days. Imagine twice a day in the morning time and in the evening time. Can you imagine every morning when you wake up, that's the first thing you hear. Can you imagine every night before you lay your head down as a soldier, as a, someone skilled in combat yourself, and that's the last thing you hear before you close your eyes. And they were scared, and they were starting to lose hope. They needed a champion, and they were getting dismayed. And everybody was looking for their first ever king to figure out what to do next. And they were looking to Saul, their king, for two reasons. First of all, they're looking to Saul, their king, because Saul was their king. That's right. And then secondly, they were looking to Saul because Saul happened to be the tallest guy in Israel. No joke. They had chosen the winner of the tallest man contest to be their king. That was the criteria. He was handsome. He was tall. He's king. Like, wouldn't that be awesome for somebody besides us, right? We're not the tallest or the most handsome. Somebody say amen. All right, all right. little. So now, now we have a giant. And giants are tall, and we got to send somebody out to fight the tall giant. We should probably send our tallest guy, right? And so the hope of Israel was hiding just behind the flap of Saul's tent. And here's the thing. This is where their story really starts to intersect with ours because we may not think of it this way, but it's true of them, and it's true of you and me, that we place our hope in what we depend on. In fact, we place our hope in who we depend on. And that's exactly what Israel had done. They had depended on Saul to be their king. They were depending on Saul, a man, a tall man, but a man, to be their champion, to be their protector, their provider, their rescuer. They were depending on Saul, and so all of their hope was in Saul. And we do the same thing. We place our hope in who we depend on. But if our hope is in a person, as it often is, then when that person disappoints us, as people are bound to do, then the measure of our hope becomes the measure of our disappointment in that person. And the measure of our hope becomes the measure of our anger toward that person. And the the measure of our bitterness and our disrespect as it grows toward that person. And this is why all of us, every single person in this room, we all have such huge potential to resent our parents. It's why parental issues and resenting moms or resenting dads is such a universal issue because we depended on them. We, we hoped in them. Maybe we still do. We depended on them, but they were human. And it's why parents hurt you, and, and, and then they made you so mad when they hurt you, and they were not there. Think about this. Your parents were absent from home, and it hurt you, and it made you mad, but you never got mad, and you never got disappointed at the couple across the street that was never home. Why? Because you weren't depending on the couple across the street, were you? You were depending on mom or dad. And, and, and so, you know, you never got mad when they uh, weren't home, you, the couple across the street, but you were always seemingly bitter and angry at mom and dad. And you were always nice and polite with the couple across the street, but you'd always talk back to your parents. And that made your parents mad. Right? And parents get this even now, right? Parents know what I'm talking about. Somebody brings your kids home and they say, man, your kids are so good and so well-behaved. And you're just like, 
you're double checking to make sure they brought the right kids home. Like, I don't think that's right. But where there is no depending on people, people never let you down. Because we place our hope in who we, de- we depend on. But resentment and anger build up when we hope in someone and they just can't be. They can't live up to what we hoped they would be. Now hang on to that thought because we're going to come back to that later. Now Saul, in all of this battle, and all of this calling out by Goliath, Saul is notably absent from the picture. Saul is notably silent there. Every day Goliath that's out there screaming his challenge and every day that Saul is not out there to respond, the army of Israel's hope fades because they depended on Saul. Every day that Saul is not out there, every morning when Saul is conspicuously absent, every evening when Saul is not there to listen to the charge before he goes to bed, the men of Israel, the resentment and their anger towards Saul grows more. And more, and this is something important. You need to know this about the, the, the story of Israel and, and Saul and David. The tension between Saul and the people is really just a highlight of a tension that already existed between the people and God. Because here's the thing about a human king and the people of Israel and their God, the God of all creation. God never wanted Israel to have a normal kind of human king in the first place. See, God originally designed Israel to be a nation that lived with God as their king. Why? Why would God do that? Why would God set up this thing called a theocracy? Because God knows what we know. That we place our hope in who we depend on. And God knows that people are flawed and kings are people. And God didn't want Israel to ever be disappointed in their leader. He wanted them to be different than all of the nations around them. And so God wanted all of Israel's hope to rest on God, because you can depend on God, and God will never let them down. So 400 years before Goliath got up and and highlighted this tension between Saul and the people, God had rescued Israel from Egypt, from another oppressor, from another violent man, another violent ruler, and he set Israel up as a theocracy. And then God gave them go-between leaders. And we know that there was Mo- Moses and, and Joshua. And then there were these judges that ruled over Israel for a while. In fact, in the Old Testament, the old part of your Bible, the book of Judges is actually a documentation of, of some of these judges and how they ruled over Israel. And then there were prophets that came. And all of them were these go-betweens, these mediators between God and the people. And then God gave the people laws that would prosper them and protect them. And and these go-between leaders would administer the laws and it kept the people in good standing with God and with each other. But ever since the beginning, from the time they had left Egypt, when when, when Israel left Egypt, Egypt had a king. They called him the Pharaoh. And Israel, even though they just left that, they kind of wanted a king on their own. And then as they're on the long walk home, they look around at all the other people and all the other nations all around them and Guess what they all have? They all have cool kings. Like all the cool kids have kings, and we want a king. In fact, we want the tallest king. And so they made up that criteria. Don't we need a king? We want a king. All the cool nations have a king. Give us a king. And they lived under judges for a while, and, and they lived under with the prophets for a while. But towards the end of the, the last prophet <clears throat> excuse me, that ruled over them, in that capacity, his, he was a prophet named Samuel. As he got older and as he was about to pass off the scene, he was going to leave his, his legacy of leadership to his sons, but they were so corrupt, 
so evil. And, and they, they could be bribed, and it was well known that they could be bribed. So whoever had the most money, things went their way. And towards the end of, of Samuel's life, everybody knew that he was about to exit, and everybody knew that his sons were so corrupt. And so all the elders of Israel gathered together, and they came to Samuel at Ramon. They said to him, you're old. I'm not talking to anybody in particular. And your sons do not follow your ways. So Samuel, appoint a king to lead us, such as what? Such as all the other nations have. We've tried it with Moses and Joshua. We tried it with the judges. We tried it with the prophets for a little bit. Look, it's time for us to do what everybody else is doing. But Israel had forgotten their purpose. And Israel, when they forgot their purpose and they forgot their why for existing, that God wanted them to be different and why they needed to be different in this way, they, they, they forgot all of it and none of it made sense. And so they just wanted to be like everybody else. And all of it is due to a story that I hope, again, during my career as, as a preacher, and I've talked about this before, I hope that I hammer this home so often in my preaching that you start saying, there goes Jared with the story again. Like, I hope you get this story that everything started even before their ancestor Abraham, that a good God had made a good world, but that good people of his good world were created with the ability to choose whether they were going to love God or turn their backs on God and kind of do life their own way, and they chose to not love God. They chose to not live as re perfect reflections of God's goodness and God's character and God's nature. And, and so all kinds of pain and horror and sorrow entered our world. But I'm here to tell you that pain and sorrow and horror and tragedy and heartbreak were never designed by God to be part of our existence. And if you're experiencing that, and if you're living with that in your life, it's because you are living somehow, some way, either on your own or through a broken person next to you, you are living ways that God did not intend for people to live because God never intended for you to be hurt or to be heartbroken. And when people chose their own path and, and, and chose their own ways over trusting God's path and God's ways, then things in this good world went sideways in a hurry. And so God started a rescue plan, launched a rescue operation through a man named Abraham. And he's told Abraham, through you and through your descendants, I'm going to bless all the people of the earth. And I'm going to rescue all of the people on the earth. And I'm going to make you famous. Everybody's going to know who Abraham is. Everybody's going to, going to know who his, who his family is. And isn't it amazing today? Here we are some 3,500 years after all of that, and we all know who Abraham is. Like the whole world knows who Israel is, Abraham and his descendants. No other nation has the history of them. Like it's incredible, right, that God has kept his word. In the existence of Israel, we had the fulfillment of a promise that God made to Abraham 4,000 years ago. In essence, he was telling them, I'm going to give you and I'm going to give your descendants a special relationship with myself, different than everybody else in the world. Not because I hate everybody else in the world, but because through you I'm going to rescue everybody else in the world. And when everybody else sees how blessed you are, and Israelites, I'm talking to you now a few hundred years later, Abraham's descendants, when everybody sees how prosperous you are and how protected you are, they'll all start asking, who is your God? They won't be asking you, what man is your king? But they are to ask you, who is your God? Who is this that protects your borders? Who is it that prospers your crops? Who is it that causes your children to live long lives in a time when normal people don't seem to live very long? 
And so the elders gathered to Samuel, having forgotten all of this, having forgotten that they needed to be special, and they tell him, give us a king, just like all of the other nations have a king. And man, when Samuel heard this, Samuel was ticked. He's like, no, I can't believe they're doing this. And so he goes, he runs and tells to God on him. He goes and he says, the people say they want a king, and God knew it was coming. He had been rejected by Israel. They'd been asking for this for hundreds of years by now, and ever since leaving Egypt. And so God tells Samuel in 1 Samuel chapter 8 and verse 7, the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. Wow, how horribly tragic, how terribly sad. That the God that had rescued them from Egypt, the God that had called them his people, even though they had done nothing to deserve it because of a promise to an ancestor that they had no connection with personally, they were called God's people and they had forgotten that and wanted somebody else to rule over them. God was saying they don't want to depend on me, they want to depend on a man. They don't want to put their hope in me. They want to pin all of their hopes on the tallest guy at the carnival. But if Israel hadn't insisted on having a king, then maybe we don't hear about David. And David eventually became Israel's second king. And arguably, David became Israel's greatest king. But he was probably their greatest king, not because he was perfect. David was tragically flawed as a man. There's an episode in his life that is just horribly, it's painful and it's shameful even still today as we read about it. He was tragically flawed as a man. And even as a king, he had his faults. But there was something about David. Something so beautiful in David's attitude and David's spirit that even though he was incredibly confident, David was also beautifully humble, almost reluctant in episode after episode in his life. And one of the things besides this that made David so special and and made him such an amazing king and an amazing leader was the fact that David loved God's laws. Now that might not seem very obvious at first, but here's the thing. Kings don't usually love laws. Kings love being the law. But kings don't usually love the laws. And and, and even when God's laws convicted him, David loved God's laws. And where many kings would simply bend the law, where many kings would simply rewrite the law, David continued to love God's law. David allowed himself to be broken by God's laws when he was in the wrong. And all through the poetry and the story and, and the literature and the songs that David wrote and the poems, over and over and over again, we hear David talking about the fact that he loved God's laws. He had a deep conviction that the creator of heaven and the creator of earth, David called him his own maker. David said, he was the one that knit me together in my mother's womb. He knows me. He created me. He is responsible for my existence. He is responsible for my awareness in this life as I live this life and walk this path of life. He has actually spoken wisdom and guidance into my life through these laws. And if that is true, if the maker of the stars and the one that keeps all of the planets in perfect orbit, if he has something to say about life for me, then it makes it worth paying attention to. And in his order and in his wisdom and in his power and majesty, there was safety and there was prospering and there was love and fullness and contentment and all of the things that we as humans long for, fulfillment and absence from pain and absence from heartache and heartbreak and all of the things that that come about as our experience in this life. And and so if he has given us wisdom for living a, a fully human life, 
then it's worth singing about that wisdom, and it's worth thanking him for that wisdom. And David wrote psalm after psalm and song after song and poem after poem talking about ordering his life around God's laws. He was thrilled about God's wisdom being shared just like we should be. If that's true, if God really did do that for us, then it changes everything. It changes everything about the words of Jesus. It changes everything that we find as instruction in the Bible. Can I hear an amen? And that belief in what God had given and the trust in God that came from his belief that God had spoken gave David extraordinary clarity as king because trust in God brings clarity to life. Trusting in God's wisdom, trusting in God's ways, trusting in God's power brings an extraordinary clarity to life. And David was never confused as to who really was the king of Israel. David would wear the crown, but ultimately God would always be in charge as long as David was king. And no matter how popular David became, and David became the most popular man in all the land, no matter how successful or talented he was, and David was extremely successful, David was incredibly talented. No peer matched him in all his different variety and skill of talents. He was always cautious with his power, and David never allowed himself to be confused as to who really was the first place king over Israel. David considered himself second place king. But that's not always the case with us, is it? It's not always the case with people that we know. That we know that for a lot of us and for a lot of people that we know, success seems to be a greater enemy than failure to most of us. A little bit of success and our heads get huge, y'all. A little bit of success and we can't even find a crown big enough to fit our big king-size head after we have had some success. We get a little bit of success in life and suddenly we're the king of us, right? A little bit of parenting success and suddenly we're the authority on parenting. I wouldn't let my kid run around like that. I wouldn't let my kid do that in the grocery store aisle. Come on, somebody. Proud parent. Okay, we're going to leave that alone. Sales success. We get a little bit of success in sales and man, we think we can sell ice cubes to an Eskimo. Everybody wants a piece of what I'm selling. We get some financial success and we feed our ego with things. Some academic success and suddenly we start looking down on other people. We're smarter than everybody. Anybody know someone that's book smart but just really doesn't get it in common? Don't raise your hand. Don't ra- Husbands, wives, keep your elbows in tight to your side. Like We get success in some hobby or some talent. Maybe we've been living for God for a long time. You know, We haven't murdered anybody or like done hard drugs or anything. Like you know, That's success. So suddenly we're the super Christian and we know more than everybody. Suddenly we sit on the throne of our hearts. But once we are the king of us, we depend on ourselves. And we begin to trust in ourselves. And when we begin to depend on ourselves and trust in ourselves, all of our hope begins to rest on ourselves. And it's like we can't help it sometimes. We know we shouldn't. Like nobody knows our history better than us. There are things that we know that nobody else will maybe even ever find out. But but we hope in ourselves because we begin to we begun to depend on ourselves. A tiny bit of success, and it makes us trust ourselves. And that tiny bit of success can be the beginning of the end for a lot of us. Because we know that we just can't depend on us. And when we hope in what we depend on, and we put all of our hopes in who we depend on, we know that even when it comes to depending on ourselves, we can't really depend on ourselves all the time. 
But David never really seemed to have that problem. Like from the time that he was young, he never really had that problem. And around 15 years old, he goes on a care visit to his older brothers. These older brothers happen to be soldiers. And guess what army they happen to be in? The army of Israel. Guess who was the commander, the leader of the army at that time? It was King Saul. They were arranged in battle. And guess who their enemy was? It was the Philistines. And guess who the Philistines had as their champion? It was this big behemoth of beef, of evil, of whatever, named Goliath. And as David heads to see how his older brothers are doing, the plot lines begin to converge in the story of Saul and David and Israel in a grand story that God is weaving together by grace. 1 Samuel chapter 17 starts off in verse 16. says, For 40 days that Philistine came forward every morning and evening and took his stand. Eighty times Goliath had gotten up and challenged Israel, send me body, send me somebody to fight with me. And 80 times Saul had reached out of his tent flap and put the sign closed out to lunch. 80 times he's ducking the call. And David shows up. And David shows up when he hears Goliath giving one of these challenges one time. He's only 15 years old. He couldn't even drive himself there. He had to take an Uber. But where Saul and his soldiers were dismayed by Goliath's speech, David wasn't dismayed. David, he was offended at what Goliath was saying. And David asked the men standing near him, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine? What are you talking about, son, killing the Philistine? Do you not see how big he is? David's like, that doesn't matter. What's to be done for the man who kills this Philistine, and removes this disgrace from Israel. This disgrace from Israel? Soldiers are looking around at each other like, we never really thought of it as a disgrace. We're mostly worried about the birds eating the eyeballs out of our severed heads. I mean, Goliath's a giant. He's a war veteran. He's got the calm demeanor on his face. There's no fear, and he's got a 15-pound spearhead on a 15-foot-long spear. And David He doesn't care, and he's not done correcting their perspective. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine? Now, that's some funny trash talk, isn't it? Like, we normally start off with, like, your mama's so fat that, you know, your mama's so... No, don't ever say those. Those are horrible things. I shouldn't have even gone. This is where David chooses to start everything. Like, to us, this doesn't make sense. What in the world are you talking about? But for Israel, this meant something way different than us. See, all the men in Israel had to be circumcised as a sign of something, not for something weird, but as a sign that they belonged in a covenant with God that they were actually part of the people and the family of God. And what David was doing was correcting the way that they were looking at the challenge. And he was telling them and reminding them, hey, we're on God's side. This guy is outside of the protection and the provision and the covering of our God. In fact, this man is trying to take land that was given to us by our God. This man is trying to enslave us when we've already been set free by God from Pharaoh and all of the others that have tried to overcome us. Who is this guy? Doesn't he know about our God? And why isn't anybody doing anything about this? So David says, I'll fight him. I'll fight him. And man, word gets back to Saul. Word gets back to Saul quick. Hey, Saul, there's somebody that's volunteered to commit suicide on the battlefield. 
saw there's somebody that just, just volunteered to breathe his last breath on the planet because nobody expected anybody to beat Goliath. So Saul calls for David. He calls for him quick. Like, let's see who this is that wants to fight Goliath. And 15-year-old David walks in, and Saul tells him to go right back out. Because David's a kid. David's got no scars, no experience. He's not a soldier. He's never even driven a car. None of them had. But before he can kick David out, David says, wait, Saul, Saul, hear me out. Let me tell you about the time that I killed a bear. Saul, have, have you talked to my brothers? They're, they're soldiers in your army. Have they told you about the time that I killed a lion? Saul, have they told you about the time that I was all by myself, Saul, and I had nobody else to depend on and nobody else to lean on? But Saul, here's what's really important that I learned from both of those experiences, Saul, that I didn't have to be the strongest guy to kill the bear. Saul, you need to know this. I've already learned this through my past experiences. I didn't need to be the smartest guy to kill the lion. I didn't need to have it all together and have everything set up or have advanced weapons or rifles or cannons or bombs or any of those things. Saul, it wasn't me that killed the lion on the bear. Saul, I depended on someone else to help me kill those then. And Saul, I'm depending on someone else to help me kill Goliath now. Mm, I wish somebody was preaching with me this morning. Saul, maybe nobody else in my family knows this. Saul, maybe all my brothers just think I'm I'm a little bit crazy, and that could be true, but, but it was never really about me and what I could do. It's always been about our God. It's always been about our champion. My hope was never in me. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. And this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied me, because he has embarrassed Saul, because he has thrown out a taunt to a bunch of soldiers. No, because he has defied the armies of the living God. And this enemy exists outside of God's favor. This enemy is standing right now, not just across the valley. He is standing outside of God's will. And can I speak and can I preach to the children of God this morning that when your hope is in the Lord, that everything that opposes you, everything outside of God's will that is trying to take you out, it is not just in opposition to you. It's not just coming against your heart or your spirit or your soul. It is an opposition and an enemy of the great God of heaven and earth. And you don't need to depend on yourself. You can't rely on yourself. We've already tried that. And it didn't work before. Saul, this giant, is outside of God's will. Saul, that means this giant is outside God's protection. He's going down just like the bear. He's going down. Just like the lion. Not because I'm a great soldier. I'm not dependent on me. Not because I'm a great military warrior. I'm not depending on my experience. Saul, all of my hope rests in the Lord. All of my trust is in God. I don't depend on me. Depend on the Lord. And the Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion. And the paw of the bear. Listen to this. Will rescue me. Not maybe, not kinda, not he'll only let me lose one arm. 
No, he will rescue me. Unshakable faith and unshakable confidence because he was putting all of his hope and all of his confidence and all of his trust in an unshakable God. Can we just pause right now? Come on, all over the room. Can you lift up your hands and your eyes and just tell him, God, my hope is in you. Come on, tell him, God, my hope is in you. God, I trust in you, not in me, not in my ability. And David said, Saul, my hope, my trust, my dependence, it's in the Lord. There was zero confusion for David. There was no doubt. There was no gray area for David. He just saw things like nobody else saw them, that an enemy of God's people is an enemy of God. Goliath wasn't just defying Israel and defying Saul like he claimed to be. He was defying God. And 15-year-old David had so wrapped his brain around this, but more than his brain, 15-year-old David had so wrapped his heart around this that he was fearless. He wasn't reckless because he knew who he trusted in, but he was fearless because he knew the one that he trusted in. And he had gained this from God taking him through a time when no one else was around. He had gained this and learned this in moments when the heart beats fast and when the senses are heightened and when death feels so present that you can almost smell it. He had learned this in the desert. He had learned this by the sheep pens. He had learned this when dad was back home and the brothers were off to war and he was by himself. And for anybody out there this morning, if you feel like you're in that time, you could be married even. You could have friends all around you, but there's just something raging in your soul when you feel cut off and isolated and alone. Can I preach to you this morning that you are not alone. You are not forgotten. You are not abandoned. But God is trying to put something in you that doesn't depend on anybody else. It doesn't lean on anybody else but to give you a testimony where you can face your next battle and say with your shoulders squared and your chin held high that my trust is in the Lord. My hope is not in me. My hope is not in a man or a woman but all of my hope is in God. And David had learned that the man or the woman whose hope is in the Lord never has to fear, even when there's something to be afraid of. The man, the woman whose hope is in the Lord, you never have to fear, even though there are things in life that scare us at times, that kind of take our breath away and take us back and shock us and come out of nowhere. They come out of nowhere for us, but God has seen all along. So Saul, pick me. Saul, choose me and I'll go and fight Goliath. I'll be the one to face down what nobody else will face down. And the, the, the beautiful thing about all of this, it would be one thing if we just had the narrative and just had the story, but here's the beautiful thing. David was a poet. David was a songwriter. And, and David wrote lyrics and, and verses. And it's just amazing because we don't just have the facts of the story. We're not just left with a third-party observation. We actually get to hear what David thought and how David felt when he was going through all of this testing of his faith and his heart bleeds out in lyrics and poetry. And, and years later, the, his, his clarity that he had and the simplicity of his trust in God found its way into a psalm. And it's so beautiful. Psalm chapter 25, verses 1 and 2. David said, in you, Lord my God, I put my trust. In you. I was facing that nine and a half foot tall giant. It was impossible for me. 
It was impossible for anybody in Israel. But in you, Lord my God, I put my trust. I trust in you, so do not let me be put to shame, nor let my enemies triumph over me. Whether or not I end up shamed, it's not in my enemy's control, God. It's in your control. So God, if you're in control, then don't let me be put to shame. Goliath is irrelevant to David. If it wasn't that big slab of devil beef, it would be a different big slab of devil beef. It did not matter to David. The only one that mattered was the one that David hoped in. The only one that was important was the one that David was depending on. And David had simply decided from an early age, my hope and my trust is in the Lord. Because I've trusted people before and people have let me down. I've depended on myself before and I thought I had quit. And then the next week I thought I quit again. And then the next week I thought I quit again. Hello, somebody. I tried doing it myself before and I'm just not enough. Come on. We're not enough. And we know we're not enough. People have trusted careers and money and things and distractions and accomplishments and status and all of those things have let people down. But when you hope in someone who can never fail, look what he said in verse 3, no one who hopes in you will ever be put to shame. See, this is what God wanted from the beginning. This is what God was trying to make happen from the very first moment he called Israel and told them that he wanted to be their king. He wanted to avoid the kind of disappointment that Saul had shown them. He wanted all of their dependence and their trust and hope to rest in him alone. And if you're here this morning, he wants the exact same thing from you. He doesn't want some of your trust. He doesn't want some of your dependence. He doesn't want some of your hope to rest in him and some of it to rest in your ability to figure things out. Live life your way. Do things your way. Figure out your own path. Can I tell us something this morning that might be a little bit painful? You're not that special. We are not unique in that sense. I'm telling you, in growth track, we do a personality profile thing. Like all of us fit into categories. I took that stupid test in growth track, summed up my whole existence in a paragraph. I thought it was unique, man. My mom's been telling me that for years. Mom's a liar. <laughs> Hello. You've depended on other people before. You've trusted yourself before. We've ended up disappointed. We've been frustrated. We've all been ashamed and trapped, addicted, confused, hurting, wandering, desperate, alone. Jesus, let our trust rest in you. Come on, all over this room again. Come on, let our trust rest in you, Jesus. Let all of our hope rest in you, Jesus. And the God of all heaven and the God that knit us together in our mother's womb, he calls to us as sons and daughters, and he offers us himself. He offers us himself. We actually live, and I don't have time to go into it, we live actually under a better covenant than the nation of Israel where we don't just get a rule book, we get a Holy Spirit. We don't just get stone tablets, fools of thou shalt and thou shalt nots. We actually get the presence of our Savior living with us and living in us each and every day. And He offers us His heart and His wisdom and His strength. And when we put our trust in Him, we will never be ashamed. 
In verse 5, David writes something that no king probably has ever written before since. He tells God, guide me. David, you're supposed to be guiding other people. All the more reason, God. If I'm supposed to be the light, if I'm supposed to be the one in charge here, if I'm supposed to be the one making the path, then please guide me in your truth, in your truth. And teach me, for you are God, my Savior. And my hope is in you, and I love this, all day long. All day long. God, all the more reason. God, all the more reason. My days are short, but my days seem long at times. But God, my hope is in you all day long. And on a fateful day in the history of Israel, a 15-year-old shepherd boy walked out of a tent, walked down a hill, met Goliath there in the valley. No doubt the Philistines were thinking, this is our day. They're sending a boy. No doubt the people of Israel were thinking, what in the world? Has Saul lost his mind? Saul has certainly lost his heart. And in those moments when they saw David walking down the hill, the men of Israel lost their hope because all of their hope rested in who they depended on. And they depended on a man. They were trusting in a tall king. But David had trust in his God. Goliath sees David coming and Goliath laughs and he roars out his warning and roars out his terms again and David lets him finish and waves his hand in his face because of his breath and then David responds, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands and I'll strike you down like this part, and cut off your big head. <laughs> this very day, Goliath, I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel, and all those gathered will know. It's not by sword, it's not by spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's and he will give all of you into our hands. And then David killed Goliath. And he became the most popular 15-year-old man in Israel. And when Goliath fell, the Philistines made a huge mistake. And some of them broke ranks and turned and started running back up the hill. And when they saw that, the men of Israel gained heart again. And in an instant, their trust shifted. And they ran down the hill and gave a shout and started chasing the Philistines. And they overtook them and they slaughtered them there in the valley of Elah. And they got rich off of their plunder. All because David saw something like nobody else saw something. Because David was factoring in something that everybody else had left out of the equation. David's trust was in God. And it was never about anybody else. It was always about God. Can you give God thanks this morning? Come on, musicians. Come on, a little bit longer, a little bit louder this morning. Come on, can you give God praise? So David had clarity in an impossible situation because people who trust in God understand something about life, that there are too many variables in life to depend on a person. There are too many things that you can't control. There are too many enemies that you don't choose. 
There are too many sicknesses that you never saw coming. There are too many circumstances and opportunities and missed opportunities that just in the moment, they come and they're gone and we weren't ready. We blew it. Whatever it is that happened, there's just too much up in the air to depend on a person or depend on ourselves. And so people who trust in their God, they trust in God all day long. And when they open their eyes in the morning and they get up, they rededicate their day. They rededicate their thoughts and their behaviors and their choices and their attitudes. And people who trust in God lean every part of themselves on a God who can never, ever fail. And they say, in you, Lord, my God, I put my trust. My hope is in you all day long. In you, Lord, my God, I put my trust. My hope is in you all day long. Can you say that with me? In you, Lord, my God, I put my trust. My hope is in you all day long. Isn't that powerful? Isn't that beautiful? Can you imagine? Can can we all stand this morning? Let's all stand. Can you imagine waking up tomorrow morning and that being the first thing that you say? Can you imagine if you wake up in the morning and you, you quote, Psalm 25, verses 1 and 2 and 3, because you got so inspired today that you memorized some scripture. It's been a while, right? If you woke up tomorrow morning and you said, you, God, you, Lord, my God, I put my trust, my hope is in you all day long. Can you imagine while you're driving into work and you know there's things waiting for you that you just wish weren't? There's some other things waiting for you that maybe you are feeling good about or looking forward to, but high or low, does not matter. In you, Lord, my God, I put my trust, my hope is in you all day long. It's not in my boss, it's not in my paycheck, it's not in job security, but it's you, God. Can you imagine after a victory or after a high point in your life? Can you imagine after a milestone if you didn't take the credit and you didn't pat yourself on the back, but instead you paused while everybody else is in the other room celebrating maybe, or after everybody else walks away, if you paused and you closed your eyes and you said, in you, Lord, my God, I put my trust. My hope is in you all day long. Can you imagine? Can you imagine walking out of a doctor's office and the diagnosis and the prognosis is just not what you would hope for? The options that they give you aren't the ones that you were hoping for. And as it all begins to well up and as it all begins to overwhelm you, just in you, Lord, my God, I put my trust. My hope is not in these doctors, though they have good intentions. My hope is in you all day long. 24 7, 365. Jesus, it's you. Jesus, it's you. Come on, all over this room, can you raise up your hands and begin to say it with me? Come on, put it in your own words. Come on, apply it to your own pain. Come on, apply it to your own victory. Apply it to your own day, your own past. Jesus, everything, 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 Jesus, we give to you. Jesus, everything we give to you. Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. In just a moment, I'm going to have them start singing a song, but I, I wanted to say this. Today is a day when we started promoting Baptism Sunday, happening April 28th. And listen, baptism is a lot of things, but one thing baptism is, it's a, it's a marker in your life. It's a stake and driven into the ground, a time and a point where you tell God, no more of my past trust, no, ma- no more of the things that I leaned on before, depended on before. From this day forward, I put my trust in you, God. All of my hope is in you all day long. And if you've not been baptized as an adult follower of Jesus, like 
There's no better time, I'm telling you. April 28th is it. And you can go online to sign up. Or I, we put cards in the backs of all the seats there and pull one of those out and put your name on it. Drop it in one of the offering boxes in the lobby. It's so easy. We take away all the barriers between you and God. We hope, we hope, it's our prayer that when you are in that water, and when you come up out of that water, that it's you and Jesus face to face. And you'll be able to say to him one more time, in you, Lord, my God, I put my trust. My hope is in you all day in all life. For more information about City Grace, you can find us online at citygrace.church. We'll see you next week.